Welcome to Occult of Personality, esoteric podcast extraordinaire at occultofpersonality.net. I'm your host, Greg Kaminsky, and your co-host is Rudolf Berger. This is episode number 190, featuring an interview with author Gary Lockman. Occult of Personality podcast is made possible by you, the listeners, and by the subscribers to chamberofreflection.com, our membership site, as well as all those who support us via Patreon. On May 1st, 1776, Adam Weishaupt founded the Order of the Bavarian Illuminati. Weishaupt's goal for the Order was to elevate society with the virtues of public education, the ideals of the Enlightenment, and the general liberty of humanity. In short, Weishaupt sought to illuminate the world. Now, over 240 years later, and for the first time in history, the collected works of Adam Weishaupt are being professionally translated into the English language and published in a 24-volume set produced by Malta Minerva Editions. To celebrate the 242nd anniversary of the Order's founding, we are pleased to announce Volume 1, Number 1, of the collected works of Adam Weishaupt will be available for pre-sale at MaltaMinervalEditions.com beginning in May 2018. To learn more, visit them on Facebook and Twitter at username MaltaMinerval or at MaltaMinervalEditions.com Anathema Publishing Limited Quality Occult Books and Contemporary Esoterica Established in 2011, Anathema Publishing aims to provide superior literature in content and form by creating a trinosophic relationship in troth and gabo between publisher, author, and reader. Anathema Publishing produces refined books for the true bibliophile on topics ranging from Gnosticism, traditional craft, alchemy, hermeticism, witchcraft, to Luciferian theosophy. www.anathemapublishing.com Temple of Thelema is a true outer order of the greater mysteries, providing ceremonial initiation, structured training, and regular group work, all in conformity with the principles of the Book of the Law. An investment of time, effort, and commitment is expected from each member. Each is expected to aspire fervently to the great work, to dare, with courage undaunted, to perfect that work 
and ever to apply his or her best effort to effect harmony within the Order and within the world in general. Founded in service to the AA, College of Thelema seeks to guide the student to an understanding of the Law of Thelema. Most especially, this means a deeper understanding of oneself and of one's true will. A combination of instruction techniques is employed, including seminars, written texts, and individual work. For over 40 years, College of Thelema has published journals in the Continuum and Black Pearl, as well as several books on occult subjects maintaining high standards in Thelemic education. Visit Temple of Thelema at www.thelema.org. Occult of Personality Podcast is also sponsored by Miskatonic Books, an online store that focuses on the esoteric, occult, ceremonial magic, Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, witchcraft, the Golden Dawn, as well as dark fantasy, classic horror, and supernatural fiction. They carry books by all your favorite esoteric publishers as well. Just visit MiskatonicBooks.com. Acclaimed author Gary Lockman joins us to discuss his recent and arguably one of his most important books, The Lost Knowledge of the Imagination. By presenting this book at this time, Lockman has contributed an important and useful primer to the perennial philosophy and a guide for those ready to explore different more authentic perspectives of reality. While it may be overshadowed by more sensational or popular material by this author, The Lost Knowledge of the Imagination is my favorite work by Gary Lockman. This book speaks to the soul and invites the reader to consider a way of perceiving that re-enchants the world. Gary Lockman is one of today's most respected writers on esoteric and occult themes, His many books, including those on Madame Blavatsky, Aleister Crowley, Swedenborg, Carl Jung, and Rudolf Steiner, have received international acclaim. A founding member of the band Blondie, Lachman has been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He lives in London, and you can find his website at garylachman.co.uk. Gary, I want to welcome you back to the podcast. It's really a pleasure to speak with you again, and uh, thank you so much to talk about your book, Lost Knowledge of the Imagination. Well, Gary, we are talking today about your new book, which is called Lost Knowledge of the Imagination. And I was intrigued from the very beginning by the title, I must say, because for two reasons. One, because it expresses something that I have felt not being able to say myself for a long time. And you, t- you kind of took me by the hand and said things that I was I had in the back of my mind for a while. So thank you for that. But also, I wonder if you had a particular reason 
now to write that book if there's any particular reason in those last 10 12 years that brought you to write that book um you were talking in a in a sub title it you'd call it has science sidelined imagination so i wonder if this controversy between science and well the spiritual side or the the, the world of the spirit has inspired you or if there was any other reason why you now took the time to write exactly that book well the title itself um comes from the um uh, poet Blake scholar and essayist Kathleen Rain, um, who uh, for many years um, was sort of the leading spirit of um, uh, what's not what's called the Temenos Academy um, mm -hmm. here in in London, and um, she also talked about a learning of the imagination and uh, sort of the excluded knowledge or the rejected knowledge, and um, fundamentally for her it meant that in sort of the modern age. Uh, let's say, um, you know, the last 300 years, and specifically for Kathleen Raine in the, in the er early 20th century, uh, when she was at Cambridge, um, the kind of, uh, the sort of sensibility, the understanding of the imagination uh, had gone from um, being something that was in many ways sort of central to human experience to being uh, sidelined and in many ways sort of just uh, actually uh, considered um, you know, uh, something to be avoided. Um, but what she discovered in uh, the poets that she loved, uh, poets like Blake, who she'd written about a great deal, and also Shelley and Keats, and then uh, Yeats in the early 20th century, was that they seemed to, um, in their poetry, transmit this, um, it wasn't only about their own individual imaginations, they were writing about the imagination itself. And there was a whole tradition of symbols and metaphors uh, and images that um, spoke of this reality of, of this inner world, imagination. And this ultimately was linked, uh, she found, to Neoplatonic philosophy, uh, Plotinus and, and his uh, uh, followers in the um, sort of uh, second and third century in Alexandria. And um, it was while I was writing an, uh, an earlier book, um, uh, called The Secret Teachers of the Western World, which is an uh, overview of Western sort of intellectual and spiritual um, evolution um, from a from the perspective of the esoteric tradition, um, that um, I kept returning to this phrase of hers, the learning of the imagination, the lost knowledge of the imagination. Because in that book, I, I argue that um, fundamentally what's happened is that um, uh, with the rise of modern science in the early 17th century, one side of ourselves, one some one whole other way of being in the world, was sidelined, was put aside, was jettisoned, was rejected, uh, and this was the beginning of you know the end of myth and um, basically the end of the religious kind of pers perspective on things and spiritual and the rise of of, of the material. And I, I linked this with um, the recent developments in uh, neuroscience and. The writing of Ian McGilchrist in his book, The Master and the Emissary, where he sort of reboots the whole left and right brain uh, discussion. Um, and it, it strikes the whole sort of science and spirituality or science and poetry or matter and spirit or, you know, uh, however you want to sort of polarize it. Um, it is precisely about that. For me, it is about this kind of polar relationship. 
Um, and you can see this in, in our history, in our intellectual, in our spiritual, our conscious development. Um, if you go back to uh, what the German philosopher Karl Jasper is called the Axial Age, and this was the, the uh, sort of the time around the whole globe when the sort of fundamental ethical and moral questions that we still live by were, were established. Um, but what happened in Greece was the rise of rationality and reason and what would fundamentally become, you know, what we know as science. Um, and from that time until now, um, at different times has been a kind of, uh, you know, back and forth be between the two. But what's happened in the last, say, three or four centuries is an over uh, emphasis and, and a by now almost complete um, dominance of um, the more material, the more sort of scientific um, perspective. So what's needed is to bring this other back in. And it isn't just about let's have more imagination. It's about recognizing that the imagine, imagination is itself a cognitive uh, experience. It's mm. not just about make-believe. Um, that's not a substitute for reality. It's actually a way of grasping other aspects or dimensions of reality that have been sidelined. Yeah, thank you. Gary, it, it strikes me listening to you and, and reading your book as well, um, where you, you talk about this other kind of knowing, um, the imaginal, that at the heart of it is a, is a, is a really a view of reality itself. And I don't know that as modern humans we could necessarily even begin to understand the way that people like you said perhaps four to five hundred years ago saw the world that they existed in um could you talk a little bit about what that view of the world was that would allow someone to experience reality in such a way without uh i mean obviously we can't go back but i mean as best as we possibly could yes well i mean um the 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 book is basically focuses on the work of four um figures one was kathleen rain who i mentioned already uh two others are uh henri corbin um the, the french um philosopher and um, um, scholar of uh, uh, Persian mysticism, uh, who coined the term uh, the imaginal. Uh, Goethe, the great German poet and scientist, uh, and I talk about his pursuit of what he called the Erflanze, this primal plant, um, which is the archetype of all other plants. But um, relating to what you're talking about now is um, <clears throat> the, the historian and philosopher of language and also writer and essayist, um, Owen Barfield, uh, who's most known today as being the great friend of C.S. Lewis. He was a member of uh, the Inklings, who this uh, crew of writers who met in the pub in Oxford. Um, Lewis was one of the others, Tolkien was another. Charles Williams, who was a, a writer of uh, scholarly works on Dante, but also these sort of occult thrillers in the 30s. And um, Barfield was um, in on, on these meetings as well. And um, what Barfield uh, did was he looked into the history of language. And you're right, you know, um, we, we are different than um, uh, 
uh, you know, people from an earlier time. I mean, it's hard enough for it's hard enough hard enough for us to put ourselves in the place of somebody, you know, right now, somebody else's place right now. We have a very difficult time doing that. Um, right. But um, Barfield said that we do have some records uh, that can suggest or give us some idea of what the consciousness of of people in earlier time was like. Because he disagreed with the the commonly accepted view that consciousness is consciousness, and so. The way we are conscious is the same way that people thousands of years ago or whatever, millions of years ago, uh, were conscious. It's just that we're smarter than they are. You know, we, we, we have better ideas. They, they had lots of bad ideas about things, but over time we've built up better ideas. But the actual way we perceive the world and the world itself it was, was the same. But Barfield said, well, all right, but actually, if you look at the history of language, this isn't the case. Or, or at least language itself tells us a different story. And what the story mm -hmm. that language told Barfield was that at an earlier time, language was much more figurative, uh, much more uh, met metaphorical, much more poetic than than our language today. Um, one of the people that I, I touch on is a, a great German uh, <clears throat> Germanist scholar named Eric Heller. And he talked about the shift from the age of poetry to the age of prose. And in the modern world, we we've been in the age of prose, uh, sort of matter of fact, uh, you know, uh, language. Whereas if you go back in earlier time, the language is much more figurative, poetic. Um, it's, it, it, it has a, um, it's, it's richer, it has more body, it's more alive. And um, the way that early sort of language historians and theorists like uh, Max Muller, um, the great German scholar who was responsible for like the the, the, uh, the books from the wisdom of the East, the whole series in the late uh, 19th century. Um, hmm. he, he, he theorized, well, what, what seems to have happened was that, yes, of course, you know, um, when people first started developing language, it just had some kind of basic, simple grunts and groans and pointing to things. And from that very simple beginning, somehow at some point, there was a whole kind of generation of, of people who somehow got to work and made the language all kind of metaphorical, and figurative and symbolic and all that and uh that was just kind of a flurry of creative activity and you know you know so on and so on Th that's why it seems like that to us and but the thing is that there's no evidence of this kind of er literal language you know this language where it was just kind of you know some kind of grunt and groan and pointing to something um you know this is how we you know uh learned how to speak um and um you know, Barfield said, actually, no, what actually seems to be the case is that uh, these 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 language theorists, they were sort of hypnotized by this Darwinian picture of things, which was, you know, all the rage and, and still is, you know, uh, these days. Uh, the, just the idea that you start out with something very simple and over time it changes and it develops and it grows and grows and there's a kind of linear development. But Barfield was just saying language just doesn't tell us that story. What it seems to tell us is that at the earliest, you know, beginning of language um, and he was doing it in, in, in English language, but he also, you know, he was a scholar and uh, you know, so he, he Greek and so on and so on. Um, as it, it seems to be, <clears throat> not only is the language itself more metaphoric and lively and figurative in some way, the, the, the way people saw the world is like that. The world appeared to them in that way. The world had a much more uh, poetic kind of character, a much more metaphoric 
kind of character. Now, we, we, we use metaphors all the time, but we don't even recognize most of the time we use them. You know, they're all like cliches. You say water under the bridge or, you know, if you're looking for something, leave no stone unturned or something like that. But at some point, somebody first recognized that, oh, you know, if you're really looking for something, it's as if <laughs> you turned over every stone. So there's a, there's a real image there. There's a concrete image of it, and, and it's an activity of something. We just sort of rattle these things off now, you know, we're just so used, used to them. And what Barfield noticed was that the same effect that uh, looking at this ancient language had on him, uh, the, the effect this that had on him was the same as when he was reading great poetry, his great romantic uh, poets, because um, they too had this wonderful ability to sort of make things alive. They sort of had a way uh, to present the world in such a way that it was much more active. It wasn't this, you know, kind of uh, static dead thing. And this again ties in with what I was saying earlier about Kathleen Rain and how she, you know, discovered this tradition of the learning of the imagination and the romantic poets. Um, so there seems to be we we do have an experience of what Barfield called a kind of participatory consciousness. Now this is how he described, you know, human consciousness, you know, from the very beginning. I mean, one of the strangest things he says is that you, you can't really ask about the origin of language. Was it sort of like asking about the origin of origin? Um, the way he, he he describes this is that language and the world, and and this this notion of individual self, some some me, that's looking at some world that's not me, and then saying something about it, you know, um, having some kind of symbolic response to it. All these things sort of happened together. That you can't have one without the other. They're all sort of part and parcel of, of the same kind of process. And this is what he calls this kind of emerging from this, this sort of original participation when consciousness in the world, there, there weren't two different things. They were, they, this was the same kind of thing. You, you don't have a consciousness unless you have a world and you don't have a world unless there's some consciousness to be conscious of it. And so mm -hmm. this is something that was radically different than what the, you know, the standard you know, Western uh, rational way of looking at things uh, had it. But he found confirmation in this and other and other people, um, other scholars. Ernst Kasser, the, the German philosopher, was one who wrote about this as well, sort of the mythical state of consciousness. And we can see this in different people as well. Um, one of the people I refer to often is the uh, German Swiss philosopher Jean Gebser, and he talks about different structures of consciousness. And the person that Barfield himself saw this sort of trajectory in uh, most impressively uh, was Rudolf Steiner, and he became you know, one of the most eloquent kind of uh, interpreters of Steiner's work. Um, so, so Barfield's saying, yes, there's evidence for this earlier kind of more immersive kind of state of consciousness in which there isn't this kind of strict separation between my inner world and this outer world that's alien to me. Somehow we're all, it and I are part of some, you know, continuous process. Uh, but there was a separation um, and, you know, we're still part of this process that's going on. And what Barfield um, sort of envisioned was a movement from what he called original participation to final participation, having passed through this period in which the individual ego and, and the rational ego who is separate from the world and you know, can understand it and all of that, um, once again becomes aware of this kind of participatory relationship, but, it, but isn't completely immersed in it. He doesn't lose his individual consciousness, his individual rational ego. And this is something we have flashes of now, you know, we call them poetic experiences, mystical experiences, you know, when, when the, the I and it or one and all this sort of thing. So 
yes, while, while yes, you can say, okay, you know, perhaps it's arrogant of anyone to think that uh, we can understand what people were like back then. Okay, let's grant that. But still, if we're going to have any kind of conversation, we have to assume something like that. Because I, I have to assume I have some idea what you're like, or otherwise there's no, no point in having this conversation. So I'm, I'm willing to trust, yes, we can make mistakes, but I think there's much to be gained by, by the adventure. Oh, I'd agree. Thank you. That was yeah. a really brilliant answer. And I just want to comment briefly because you mentioned Kasserer and Steiner, and I also picked this sort of thread up in, in Pico's writings very much so and then obviously his heirs suppressed his his actual legacy and at the same time you know this all sort of took a hard turn um towards the rational mm. but yeah thank you gary that was really brilliant yeah, my pleasure great. i have to have have to have an additional question to that you know i'm a trained classical musician and when we talk about ancient music or baroque music and uh, performance practice nowadays we try to repeat and to find out how it's been done then um, but in my opinion what we often forget as performers is that not only the instruments and maybe the rooms in which we play have changed nowadays but when we go back to the ancient practices and instruments we cannot go back to our ancient ears and brains related to it. We now live in a world where we are surrounded by noise and sounds, etc. So we perceive the music from that time automatically different. Now, do you see parallels in what you were just saying? So we try to find out how people imagined or perceived imagination at the time. But can we transpose that with our brains and with our genetic experience of today. Well, look, I, I, it's to me. This is this. You know, I, I understand that, and you're perfectly right. That's there. Um, but to me, I have to say, these kind of questions always strike me as sort of like it's kind of like the epistemological question, like how do we know anything? Mm -hmm. And then you're always at the door. You're always at sort of the threshold because you're always asking, "How do I know?" And there could be this. Thing. Yes, you're right. There is that. But I just figure we have to take our best shot at it. And and you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, no, uh, but I don't mean. No, do we I know mean, it? What, you, what you're saying is absolutely right. I mean, yeah. I, 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 I've, I've grown up in a world that's a certain way, and my whole being has been in this world, and it's not been in the world, say, of ancient Egypt or ancient Greece or even the Renaissance or whatever. So, um, my whole. Um, no, but whole I mean the question positively. I've had throughout my whole life, you know, <laughs> understanding something is is part of that. Sure, but I don't mean are we. Do we have to write to try to understand? That's not at all what I mean. No, no, it's not what the right. I mean it's, is the other way around. What does the experience of today mixed with the, with the experience we have from the time give us as a new experience for nowadays, for yeah. our time and yeah. for our future? That's what I mean by it. Oh, I see. Well, yeah, I, I yes. I, well, I, I think that's exactly what Barfield means. It's not so much going back to that earlier time um, because in a way we can't, or the way we can do it, it's, it, 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 it kind of, uh, or the way we try to do it, say through drugs or alcohol, or perhaps even some kind of, you know, other means, it, it's, it's sort of, um, it, it kind of enfeebles what we've developed going through this other period. So it's, it's a combination of the two. So yes, I, I would say it's, it's bring, it's, you know, bringing the two together and something new, um, emerges out of it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, no, I, 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 I agree with you about that, but no, I mean, I, I, I guess the point I was, you know, and I'm sorry if I misunderstood you was that, you know, th- there's, you know, th- there's always some, you know, uh, critical distance between, you know, what you think, you know, what you want to do and then the actual doing of it. There's some, sure. gonna, there's going to be something in between, but I just figure you could wait at the doorstep or you can just, okay, take your chances and, you know, see what you come up with. So. Of course. So I, I, I guess in that in that way I'm more of a Hegelian than a Kantian, I guess something like that. <laughs> yeah, I see. What you mean. I, I'm not either of those, but if you had to choose between the two, it's sort of you know. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I would be the same, like you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gary, in in the book, you you talk uh, a bit about um, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe and the German poet philosopher. I'm just wondering if you could talk a bit about him to the listeners and uh, tell us how he fits into the hmm. the narrative here. All right. Well, well, Goethe is one of these, you know, great giants of of Western literature. I'm, I guess he's up there with Dante and um, Cervantes and Homer and sure. I don't know who I'm leaving out, but uh, you know what I mean, uh, Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And um, but he's he's in the book um, particularly because. As I mentioned earlier, he was both a poet and a dramatist and a novelist, but he was also a scientist. Uh, but he approached science uh, in a different way than the scientists, or as they were called at his time, the natural philosophers, um, uh, you know, around the same time as him. And But uh, what Goethe was interested in, uh, well, he was interested in uh, quite a few things, and he actually made some discoveries that are part of sort of scientific history. Uh, he... he uh, he was an evolutionist before Darwin, uh, and he made a major discovery that, you know, um, sort of uh, made the argument for evolution uh, much stronger. Uh, he took on uh, uh, Newton because uh, he disagreed with his uh, ideas about color. Um, but um, what I talk about in the book is his interest in botany and his interest in, in, in uh, plant life. And what he was most interested in, what he calls a plant morphology. Uh, he wrote a, a book called The Metamorphosis of Plants. And it was about how, you know, the plant going through all its, its changes and its growth, um, its phases and stages. And growth and development and change and transformation, this was something that was central to, to Goethe's view. Uh, in his early years, he, he practiced alchemy um, for uh, a time. Uh, but this whole idea of this sort of, this, this nature, uh, its ability to change and transform itself and create new forms and grow. Um, this was something that was central to him. And what he believed that he discovered uh, through his study of plants uh, was what he called the Erflanza, sort of the primal plant. And um, what this meant for him was this kind of, it was, it, it, it wasn't, a one concrete plant at one time planted in the ground from which all of the plants came uh, wasn't you know physical like that but it wasn't just an abstract idea like say the platonic archetypes the platonic forms um there are these you know very austere uh pure concepts you know through which you know sort of our understanding of things and the, the different you know things in the world appear so these were these two extremes and what Goethe uh, believed and and was convinced that the this earth lens of this primal plant was it was somehow something in between um it was something that he perceived 
but not with his eyes that he, he could see, but with his inner eye, with the imagination. And how he came to do this was by patiently and lovingly and tenderly and caringly observe a plant through all of its stages of growth. And in a way, much as we were talking about, you know, trying to put ourselves back into the consciousness of someone from an earlier time, Goethe, in a way, was trying to put himself into the process of the plant, you know, going through its, its stages of growth. And it was through this, this kind of um, very focused attention, just as attentive as, um, say, a regular natural philosopher would be in his observations, and just as attentive as an artist would be towards you know a painting or a poet would be towards a poem it it was an imaginative kind of encounter with the plant rather than um this kind of detached observation let's say uh and he sort of had an imaginative experience with the plant in this way he be became one with it and it, it was by doing this that he felt that he, he really had seen this thing called the primal plant and there's a famous story and i, I tell it in the book um where he, uh, Goethe, meets um, the other great German poet of the age, Friedrich Schiller, who was also interested in science. And they went to a, a, a scientific convention in um, Jena, uh, uh, and um, city in Germany. And um, uh, at the end of it, um, they were walking out, uh, and Goethe started to tell Schiller about this, uh, this, this experience he had of seeing this primal plant. He actually saw it he claimed in the botanical gardens in Palermo in Sicily uh, during his celebrated uh, Italian journey. And uh, Goethe, uh, Schiller listened patiently. And then he said, well, you know, actually, that's yep, yep, uh, sounds beautiful, but it's just an idea. It's not something real. You know, it's, it's, it's just a thought. It's just an idea. And Goethe, although he was, you know, unhappy with this, he was always very, very tactful. And he said, well, if that's the case, then it seems that I can see ideas. And this was another example or uh, expression of this idea of imagination as being cognitive, of there being a knowledge, a knowledge that can be grasped through imagination of things that are excluded from this other way that we you know, know things mostly. And again, the idea is in substitute one for the other, because Goethe was both, he was poet and, and um, uh, scientist. It's, it's, it's bringing the two together, it's bringing the two into focus. Um, and um, yeah, so that that's and uh, Goethe is also important. I mean, he's he's important for lots and lots of things. But in the context of the book, um, it was uh, Rudolf Steiner was very very influenced by by Goethe, um, and he uh, he sort of made his name as a young man uh, when he was uh, he he took on the job of editing Goethe's scientific writings. Now that may seem like um, you know a, a real kind of um, you know, prestigious thing to do, but no one, no one else wanted to touch them because the the, the literary people at the, at the time thought they were sort of you know boring and and you know, not particularly interesting as works of literature, and the scientific people thought it was just sort of you know rubbish. They they said, oh, he's a great poet, but you know he, he should should mind his own business basically. So nobody wanted to deal with these writings, and so Steiner uh, took on the job and he edited them, and it was through his understanding of Goethe's whole kind of what he calls active seeing, this kind of concrete imagining that Steiner developed later his whole, you know, uh, esoteric and occult ideas about what he calls super sensible perception and being able to perceive the higher realms and things of that sort. Yeah, Thank you. Uh, absolutely. Here we are in a realm that I find fascinating. And you were just talking about that encounter, Schiller-Goethe. Uh, 
Um, and what Schiller mentioned here was the perfect philosophical idealism, as he defined it. Mm. But what I find fascinating in what Goethe did and what you just said it that he kind of built a bridge between the philosophy of the idea and what I find at the core of spirituality or esotericism or whatever you want to call it when the spirit creates matter mm. so that's mm. transition and if I may cite a few lines from your book I think we're exactly there and I, I would love to hear you a bit more on that um, you say about about uh, Goethe's ideas, if we believe that the only way to understand the world is to break it down into a smaller and smaller parts, then smaller and smaller bits and pieces are what we shall find. Yet we've seen that Goethe had a different aim in mind. He wanted to see nature manifesting herself in her wholeness in every single part of her being. So isn't that exactly the expression in practice of what you were just saying in oh in yeah yeah no ex ex yeah exactly i mean this was this was yes you're right um, um this this was what they both they both uh at this conference they they both commiserated on you know science working in this way and they both felt that you know there should be some other way to do it goethe felt that he was <laughs> he had found it and you know well again schiller was more of a kantian so he he, mm -hmm. he really thought there was a real this is kind of you know, the, the verboten ding on Zeke, you know, there's some, you can't get there. We, we can only know this kind of stuff, that sort of thing we can't know in the same way. And Goethe was saying, well, no, I, I, I disagree. And again, Steiner would say the same thing later on, but no, but you're absolutely right. This is, this is the whole thing. It's like, rather than, you know, breaking everything down, which again, it's not bad to do that. We need to do that. That is how we understand things. This is what the left brain does. We need, it needs yeah. to do that. But when it only does that, you know, you, you run into trouble. Uh, likewise, the other, if, if it's only about seeing the whole, you know, um, it's kind of like a bland, you know, oneness all the time, uh, which may, you know, it may, may feel very nice or something, but, you know, it, it can get kind of stale and, and stagnant and all that. So, no, and this is, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, I guess one of the other things too is there's a praxis, you know, it's like, you know, Goethe's talking about this an actual, <clears throat> Um, in, in order to know, know to, to know certain things, you have to you have to change your being in a certain way. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the, that's the that's the other thing too. You know, the whole idea of the scientist just being this neutral recording device um, who's just completely you know unbiased and unprejudiced and just just a camera. Um, well, we discovered over time that it's just not like that. You know, we, no matter how much you try, you know, we, we we still have our own you know there's our own personal bias to things, and then there's you know ideological, there's metaphysical, there's all sorts of kinds of things. And, um, um, you know, Goethe is basically saying, you know, to know certain things, you have to be different yourself, you know. And I guess the whole the, the controversy is, is the traditional science is saying, no, that, that, that that's kind of you're altering things. OK, you know, whatever you put yourself in some meditative state and you see something and oh, you know that. But, you know, you can't repeat that. It's not, you know. Um, you can't show us the evidence and all that kind of thing. So that, that kind of, um, what do you want to call it? This, this kind of existential knowledge in the sense that you have to change in order to actually have some um, real awareness of it. This has always been a difficult thing for the mainstream to swallow. But this is what Goethe Gert, is saying. And oh, it, it's, again, imagination. Again, it said, it's not about imagination just letting rip. It's not just like, you know, go for it. And um, one of the things I do talk about later in the book is um, 
the poet Coleridge's distinction between, you know, imagination and fancy, you know, where uh, imagination, true imagination is original because it reaches down into the origin of things, which is this imaginal realm of, of images and symbols and all that. Whereas fancy tries to be novel and it's new, but it's new by taking things that are already made and kind of slapping them together. So, um, I mean, postmodernism to me is, is like, you know, the kind of classic example of what fancy is about, because it just takes different styles, different periods, and kind of just Velcros them mm. together. But, you know, other, 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 you know, surrealism did that. There's a lot of flying pigs, you know, um, things of that sort. Or the whole idea of the umbrella. Well, I forget um, whose definition that was. I, I don't know if that was Lautremont or something. The, the sort of the unlikely appearance of an umbrella on an operating table or something. There's some famous uh, phrase which is encapsulates sort of the essence of these kind of strange combinations of things and they're, they're at first shocking because they're unusual but um in in Coleridge's kind of distinction uh they're they're, they're taking what's already made and just putting it together again in in different ways like a set of lego blocks rather than actually creating something truly new, truly original, because it comes from the real source. And this is a this is the distinction that runs through, you know, um, the book in different ways. Uh, um, but the reason I'm saying this is that, you know, Goethe is saying this, Coleridge is saying that, he, Coleridge talks about facts of mind, and Corbin talks about how, you know, imagination is a precise instrument, which is needed in, in order to sort of um, uh, observe a, a precise realm of being. So, um, Again, it's it's something that's as precise and and um, uh, 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 needs to be uh, dealt with, uh, you know, uh, meticulously in the, uh, the same way as a mic microscope or, or a telescope does. Mm. So again, and this is one of the things too. You got what what we find uh, at different, you know, at least what I found, and I'm I'm not, you know, I'm just reading lots of other people's books too. So I'm I'm not claiming any particular original scholarship on any of this, but it just it's just there if you look for it. What you do find is, you know, there are the periodic kind of upflares of the imaginative, but it, it's usually this kind of explosion of, you know, uh, repressed forms and forces and all that. And, it, you know, it dies down after a while. It, it, um, um, it isn't this kind of knowledge of the imagination and some, something that's set out um, uh, or, except in different, you know, traditions that that still, you know, are relatively rare and and um, you know uh, minorities. I mean, obviously, you do have people that do study different kind of spiritual traditions within which imagination is something that's that's much part of it. But in general, I think culturally, you know, you kind of have these explosions of the irrational. Um, I mean, I think we're kind of going through one now. I would say, uh, um, along with lots of along with the breakdown of, of the rational at the same time so i think right now we're in a particularly um precarious uh, uh time right absolutely well, thank you mm. as this this new way uh, or different way of being that you described gary um it also seems like it it's very much what ernst younger was talking about of getting below the surface of life into the depths. And I'm wondering if you would characterize it also as a, I mean, obviously it's a departure from the strictly rational, but um, it also seems to me it's a departure from intellectualism into mm. more of a sense of feeling 
in a in a way going you know people talk about the the heart and the and the yeah. head um and i would say maybe not even just the heart but really embodying uh mm. this sort of mm. this way of knowing mm. yeah well it's 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 an actual experience i mean that's the thing it's 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 a knowing that's an experience at the same time uh and so it when you talk about it, it kind of it's a knowing that's a being. So it kind of you know it's, it's easy easy for it to break down into kind of vague, um, you know, general things. But that that's the fundamental thing that it's actually. Um, I mean, you know, we know two plus two equals four. You know, whatever. You know, uh, Washington's the capital of the United States, or whatever. Lots of facts you have, but you know, who you are or what you are, or how you feel or how you are in the world doesn't have to change in any way. It's not an experience when you sort of know these things. You can just it doesn't change your experience. You collect them, these facts. But <clears throat> this other kind of knowing, uh, um, I mean, Jung, Junger talks about uh, this kind of stereoscopic vision um, in this wonderful book of his called The Adventurous Heart. It's sort of um, unclassifiable because it's a collection of sort of little essays and um, kind of vignettes and dreams and, um, you know, uh, parables and so on and so on. And incidentally, it's 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 a book that uh, was a big influence on um, uh, Albert Hoffman, uh, the um, you know discoverer of LSD. And uh, he he um, actually invited um, Younger to, to trip with him a couple of times in the in the in the fifties. Um, but uh, the stereoscopic um, vision is is a way of seeing the surface and the depth, you know, simultaneously. It's 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 a kind of dual dual vision. Um, uh, and there's different, you know, I, 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 I talk about and, and, you know, touch on different, different, uh, you know, uh, expressions of that different sort of variants of this kind of, um, dual seeing of things. So, uh, it's the head and the heart, you know, it, it sounds again, sounds banal. Uh, but again, it's, you talk about being embodied. It's something that has a transformative effect. It's not just another, um, fact that you add to what you know. Um, and, you know, of course, I mean, I and, and anybody else can can talk about how much we know about it and what books we read and all that kind of stuff. So, yes, it, it you know, all the facts about it are there as well. But it's like playing a musical instrument. You know, you, you, you can know everything about, you know, whatever, the guitar or anything else. But to actually play, you have to pick it up and actually do it. And so that's very much what this kind of knowledge is about, too. Um, and um, it's, uh, it's, again, it's something that... Um, it, it's 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 a knowledge that is actual uh, felt as a change in in your in your being and also your perception of things. You know the way the, not only yourself but the, you know the world you're looking at is, appears different too. But again, it doesn't appear different in some strange way, not in this surreal kind of fantastic way or you know um, uh, science fictiony or you know uh, fantasy way. Uh, and it's what um, Kathleen Rain she says. Um, um, you know, uh, the content of mystical experiences, uh, you know, it's the same as the content of everyday experience, except you're, you're seeing it, you know, for the first time. Uh, imagination uh, doesn't see different things. It sees things differently. Um, there's an added dimension to what you already know. And it's that felt embodiment. It's, it's you know, it's we don't, it, it doesn't, there's a lot of philosophical ways you can talk about it. And then, you know, there's poetic and metaphorical ways. I mean, I tend to think of it as like, knowing in 3d or knowing in italics or something like that you know you know something and then you really know it um uh, gk chesterton um in one of his books and i'm getting this quote from colin wilson who you know uh, you know someone i've written about 
uh, a great length and a great inspiration for me. He always likes to quote Chesterton. Chesterton says, you know, we, we say, please pass the salt, but we don't really mean it. You know, we, we, we say the earth is round, but we don't really mean it. You know, again, this is like what I was saying earlier about how we use these metaphors and cliches, but we don't really realize what we're saying when we're saying them. We're just so used to, you know, there's kind of social lubricants. We just sort of use them to get through the day. But if you think about the earth being round and really grasp that it really is round, then actually then you really mean it. But that that grasping of the reality of something that the earth is round and is a ball out in space and the sun is whatever, 93 million miles away. You know, if, even if you grasp that for a flash, that, that has a kind of, it puts a shudder through you. Somehow, you know, the knowledge itself has changed you in some in some kind of way. And, you know, not surprisingly, there's lots of things that we, you know, unconsciously or otherwise as, as defensive measures we keep out of consciousness because it is a bit you know you know uh it is overpowering there's some things that knowing them and if you don't change your life you know i guess in a way you would be committing a kind of uh, equivalent of sin in some way so um yeah it's 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 a kind of uh, and again i don't i don't always mean sort of tremendous mystical experiences i mean um in my own I mean, my, my, my own life has been woefully bereft of, of those. I, I can't, you know, I, not too many. But um, I do remember one thing um, quite a few years ago by now, and um, I, I mentioned it at the beginning of my, my book on Rudolf Steiner, uh, where, uh, and again, Steiner is part of this, you know, canon of, you know, um, imaginative knowers. And um, I, I had been practicing some of the exercises that he talks about in his book, Knowledge of Higher Worlds. And I found myself uh, uh, looking at a rose once, and it, 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 it was a gentle shift, but it, 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 the, the felt experience was was from turning from looking at the rose to somehow feeling my consciousness was holding it in some way, it was cradling it. There was a felt, almost tactile um, part of it. And um, I mean, you know, this is something many years ago, and uh, you know, a, a fleeting taste of this, but this is something that um, it's along these kind of lines. And I know there's many traditions that, you know, a variety of different things uh, one practices, one has experiences of this. I'm, I'm not saying there's one way to do it, just that it does happen. Uh, and it, it, it's part of um, it's part of who we are already, you know, and I, I also feel that we have more of these experiences than, than we, we know we do, that we just we don't pay attention to them or um, and uh, with any luck, you know, um, one of the things I find by reading all this stuff is that I become more aware of them when they happen. Well, Gary, I want to thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honor to speak with you about your book, Lost Knowledge of the Imagination, and your upcoming books. And uh, just an absolute thrill to uh, to talk with you about uh, all of this wisdom that you write about and uh, really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Well, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, thank you. It was great to talk to you, and, Gary. Yes, you as well. The intro music is Awakening by Paul Avgerinos, and the outro music is Imagination by Zebrat. In the Chamber of Reflection, we continue the interview with Gary Lachman, straying into territory covered in his most recent book, Dark Star Rising, Magic and Power in the Age of Trump, as well as future books. I think he mentions uh, Holy Russia as well, although that is not yet out. 
join us for that fascinating and important conversation. And I'd like to remind you that although you're able to listen to this podcast at no charge, it costs time and money to create. We ask you to support our efforts and the creation of future podcasts by joining the membership section at chamberofreflection.com or subscribing via Patreon at patreon.com slash occult of personality. And if you're already supporting the show or have done so in the past, my heartfelt thanks and I salute you. Thanks again for listening, and until next time.
purpose of this record is to show you how to use your imagination to achieve your every desire. Most men are totally unaware of the creative power of imagination and invariably bow before the dictates of facts and accept life on the basis of the world without them. But when you discover this creative power within yourself, you will boldly assert the supremacy of imagination and put all things in subjection to it.